Welcome to the From Point A podcast. I'm your host, Brian Corbett. This is a show about government officials transitioning in and out of government. It's not about politics, policy, or regulation. This is a conversation focused on careers, the decisions we make and didn't make, and the consequences that we have to deal with. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Our guest today is Liza Wright, who is the co-founder and managing partner of Lachlan Partners, an executive search firm based in Tysons, Virginia. Prior to founding Lachlan, Liza was the assistant to President Bush and director of presidential personnel. Liza has a long career in executive search, including her time at Capital One and Hydric and Struggles. I hope you enjoy the discussion in which Liza talks about how to find a job in government, how to exit government to your next step, and offers her general career advice. So, Liza, thank you for joining me this afternoon. We're here at the headquarters of Lachlan Partners, the search firm you founded when you left the White House in, in 2009. So thank you for hosting me. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So I want to start, Liza, with your Virginia connection, because when I looked at your bio, it looks like you went to, you grew up in Virginia, went to college in Virginia, worked in the White House, then came back and started your firm in Tysons, Virginia, which is where you are now. So talk a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and, and how you wound up here. Well, I originally actually was um, was born in Michigan, in Detroit, and moved to Boston, but ultimately landed in Virginia, down in the Hampton Roads area, um, when I was in seventh grade. And so, after graduating from from college, I ended up joining a small financial services company at the time. No one knew the name, but it was Capital One, and I didn't realize that I was literally starting. Uh, on board a rocket ship because when I started they had a couple hundred employees and within like three years they had 10,000 employees. So what did your parents do that caused you to move from Detroit to Boston to Newport News? It was it was actually my mom. My, my mom and dad actually divorced when I was pretty young and so my mom moved us. She was a hospital administrator and she moved from Detroit and landed a job at Mass General in Boston and so that's what moved us when I was in kindergarten to Boston and then um, and I, that's where I, I actually had a, a really, really horrible Boston accent when I was in Boston. <laughs> when I moved to Virginia in seventh grade, I got teased incessantly about it. So um, uh, I, I actually did some speech therapy classes. So as you can tell, I think I, There's I don't... There's zero accent. Right. <laughs> There's a reason for that. So um, moved to Boston and then uh, was there for about six years. And then ultimately my mom and, you know, um, her job brought her down to the Newport News area. So you went to college at James Madison, where, interestingly, you were a biology major, which I wouldn't have expected for the founder of an executive search firm. No. I can tell you no, not many people go to college saying that they want to go into the executive search industry. I didn't even know about the, that industry when I was in college. I, I always was good in the sciences, math and the sciences, and so I just gravitated towards biology and I, with a minor in chemistry. I, I graduated thinking that I was going to go on to medical school, and... Um, you know, I ended up needing to make some money and, and not go right into graduate school. So I was going to take a year or two off. And ultimately what happened, I found this job at Capital One and they saw in me, I think, that I had some skill sets uh, <laughs> to be a recruiter. And so my first job at, at Capital One back in 1993 was to be um, a recruiter and I helped to recruit the management staff of their call center in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And then honestly, Capital One was such a phenomenal experience. 
I was, you know, I, I got promoted a couple times within a year or two, and I, it was it was just the kind of place it was growing so fast that if, if you were assertive and you, you know, worked really hard, they rewarded that behavior. And within two years, I found myself in a position where I was the de facto kind of head of executive recruiting for them at the ripe age of 25. So I'm just trying to picture my mom's reaction. If I were to yeah. tell her mom, I was a bio major. I'm ready to go to med school. I'm going to take a little break and work for this bank for just a couple months to make some money. But then all of a sudden, it became your career. How, how did how did mom take that? They news? were very supportive. I mean, honestly, they just wanted me to be to, to be making money so I could support myself. And I think what happened was when I went to Capital One, things just started happening so quickly. And I think they saw that I was, I, I didn't look back. I never, I don't have a regret at all for not pursuing um, kind of the medical school path. Uh, and I think, it, you, you know, in, in, in some ways you have to kind of uh, in life take uh, those opportunistic things that come up. If I hadn't been open to that, I don't think I would have, uh, you know, had the experiences that I had ultimately. So while you're at Cap One, your career was clearly progressing. You were being promoted. You were opening these big call centers in different states, which is a huge undertaking. But then you decided at some point to go to the White House and to go into government. Um, how did you get from Capital One to the White House? So there was a, another step in between. I left Capital One because I really liked recruiting. I liked the executive level recruiting. And I had been working with an executive search firm called Hydric and Struggles at the time. I had been working with them on a couple of senior level searches at Capital One, and they turned the tables on me and recruited me to come to Hydric. And so I, th I saw the opportunity at Hydric as one where I could really learn the craft of, of executive search. So I started in, what was it, 1996, working at Hydric and Struggles as a lowly associate. And um, I think I hit the market at just the right time. I had a great boss who was very helpful in, in kind of promoting me. And also I had the opportunity because of the dot-com boom, um, there were kind of, Hydric was promoting its first wave of associates into that principal partner um, ranks. And I was, I, I was a beneficiary of that. So I was at Hydric for about eight and a half years. And then after that, I left and I actually met, the reason I went to the White House, um, I met a woman by the name of Dina Powell. And I, we were trying to recruit Dina. She was at the RNC at the time to come to Hydric and Struggles. And to make a long story short, at the time, we, I think, ma even made her an offer. But at that time, she received an offer to go work in the Bush-Cheney transition team. Um, Clay Johnson, I think, snatched her up. And um, the rest is history there. And then fast forward to 2003, I got a phone call from Dina when she was moving into the head of presidential personnel role. And I think at the time they wanted to bring in somebody that actually had executive search background from the market. And so I was the, the lucky recipient to, uh, to get that call from Dina. And I came in in March of 2003. March, and did you come in as the assistant to the president and mm -hmm. director of personnel or did? No. Okay. I came in as a special assistant to the president um, and I basically took over Dina's former job, which was basically managing all of the appointments to the, um, we called it the economic portfolio. So it was the world that you know quite well, you know, Treasury, 
It also had transportation, OMB, all the regulatory agency, you know, um, kind of chairman and, and commissioner type positions. Um, and oh, by the way, at the time I was six months pregnant and oh, I wow. had a one year, at, one year old at home. So it was a crazy time personally, but it was also an opportunity that I, I just couldn't pass up. And when was it that you were promoted to become the, the head of the, the personnel office? So that happened after the 2004 election. I, I'm a little fuzzy on the exact date, but I know after that election, within a few months, um, Condi Rice became Secretary of State, and then um, she pulled Dina over to the State Department as an Assistant Secretary, and that's what made you know what made the opportunity even available. So at that point, I raised my hand. I ended up taking um, that position on. I want to say in the spring of 2005. So when you ascended the position of Assistant of the President and Director of Presidential Personnel, you are essentially the President's search firm and recruiter for all positions within the White House and also all Senate-confirmed positions at the agencies? Is that the scope of the job? Well, so the scope of the job is definitely very vast. Um, it includes all the politically appointed positions across the administration. I actually didn't get as involved in the positions within the White House. Sometimes I would be, I would advise the White House personnel office on, on positions, but for the most part, my purview and my team's purview really fell in three categories across the, the administration. The first uh, were all Senate-confirmed positions. Um, the second was all the SES politically appointed positions. And then the third were the Schedule C positions um, across the administration. About how many people are we talking? Oh, I think, so that number has changed um, over the years, but I would say roughly between 4,000 and 5,000 <laughs> positions. And I, I used to carry a notebook literally everywhere I went, whether I was at work or, you know, at the beach, which I didn't get to the beach very often back then. But where I carried a huge binder because I always wanted to be prepared if the president called me and had a question about an appointment. But when you're doing four to 5,000, you know, positions, it's hard to kind of balance all of that. So I I, that was kind of part of my paranoia during the time of just I, I always wanted to make sure that I knew the answers and could anticipate what the president would ask me. And, and knowing President Bush, he wouldn't hesitate to pick up the phone and call and say, hey, what's going on with, with this person? What's the latest? <laughs> oh, no, I have a couple of um, embarrassing kind of funny stories about where I've been when I've received those calls. One of them was in the dressing room at Neiman Marcus trying on a gown for the uh, White House Correspondents' Dinner. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, so I remember getting called at my home, and my kids were really young, and they were screaming in the background, right. and I, you know, trying to exit the house, you know, and lock them in the house so, you know, the president couldn't hear my kids screaming. It's, you just, you just oh, yeah. roll with the punches. You roll with it. <laughs> so you, 4,000 positions sort of under your purview, you obviously worked on a ton of sort of interesting processes. Maybe maybe talk about one or two of your more notable searches and just to give people a sense of, of, of the process. Oh, boy. I think there are so many. Um, and I because I, I, I personally tended to work on anything that President Bush cared about, you know, and he, look, he cared about all the positions. But I mean, anything where he would take a personal interest, which tended to be the cabinet and then there were um, ambassadors, and then and those were the politically appointed ambassadors, and then um, a whole handful of like sub-cabinet positions. And I would say, when I look back on kind of some of the highlights, how could I not say the Fed, Federal Reserve Chairman? That was such 
an opportunity. Alan Greenspan had been in that role for so long. And we were able, we were successful in keeping his departure quiet, which was not an easy task. And it was a basically a search committee of myself and four other people, including the vice president and the chief of staff and the national economic advisor. And um, together, we did a very thorough process. There are not that many people in the world that actually are qualified to become Fed chairman. And so we went through this whole process, um, whittled the candidates down, brought them in, and we did like a, almost like a panel-style interview in the vice president's office. Um, so that was definitely a highlight, um, which ultimately kind of culminated with Ben Bernanke's um, nomination and, and confirmation. And I would say the second one definitely was Hank Paulson and his appointment. Um, You know, Hank said no to me once or twice. I think he said no to Josh once or twice. So we finally got the president on the phone with him because we knew he was the right man for the job. At the time, I think he was really our only serious, you know, contender. And we don't normally put the president in a position to ask someone that might say no, but we thought it was worth worth a shot. And there's all <laughs> kinds of lore around the, the Paulson recruiting process with mm-hmm. secret meetings at the Willard Hotel in the basement <laughs> and anything you can share with us around that? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say working with, um, I think working with Hank was probably one of the highlights of my time because when he came on board, I mean, when I say came on board, I mean, minutes after we nominated him, he was, he was laser focused right. um, on building a team at the Treasury Department that was just, you know, world class. And so I've kind of partnered, you know, with Hank during those months. So my full-time job, I think, at that point became focused on on Treasury and making sure Hank got the very best people. And look, in retrospect, given what happened with the financial crisis, yeah. I mean, thank God you got the two of them in there and their teams because the, the country's in a, a much better place for the work you did and that they did when they were in those jobs. Wow. So. Thank you for that. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Don't thank me. Thank them. <laughs> so from your, your perch in the, the White House, Liza, you saw thousands of resumes and interviewed thousands of candidates. You know, if I were on the outside and I was a 30-year-old lawyer uh, looking to work in the White House or work in government, you know, what's the process? How does one position themselves to kind of get a job in the White House or a job at, at one of the agencies? Are there any right. – what's the advice you would give someone? Well, the first thing I would I'm going to say, and then I'll come and I'll answer your question, is I I love when I hear people that want to serve because honestly, and no matter what I do next in my career, it will forever be. I think you probably would agree with this too, Brian. It's the highlight of my experience. So I I definitely any chance I can, I try to encourage people to whether you serve early in your career, mid career, or late in your career. Um, but but going back to your question, the, you know, look, I think first and foremost, you know, if you can get some campaign experience, that is obviously um, a natural way for folks to transition into an, an administration because, you know, that's kind of the, one of the first places that the Office of Presidential Personnel, you know, looks to um, because you've got this awesome group of people who have been out there, you know, really trying to help the president, you know, get elected. And so what we try to do is assess their skills and then figure out kind of where are they, you know, what qualifications do they have and where do they best fit. But I I will tell you, you know, there are so many positions in the government. My advice to people is to do your homework, do research and figure out using the Plum Book and, uh, you know, other kind of online methods where 
you know, if you just send your resume in and say, hey, I'm interested in serving this president, that's great. But it's much more effective if you can say, here's my background and here are three positions at the Department of Commerce, Department of Transportation, and OMB that I think I would be qualified for. I think the more you can really hone in, you don't want to limit yourself, but I think if you can help um, you know, the folks that you're working with at the Office of Presidential Personnel really understand how you view your, your skills and your strengths and, and then do the research to understand where that fits in the administration. I think the more you can do that, the better you know, chance you'll have in, in actually getting a call and getting placed. In your view, does the, the political experience, having worked on a campaign, does that diminish as you move on in a president's term? So is it more important in the first two years than it is in later years, or is it consistent throughout? It's a really good question. I would say it, it, it's definitely important in the beginning because you know, we're filling all these positions all at once. And look, if we've got two people with the same qualifications and one worked on the campaign and one didn't, we're, we're going to choose the person that worked on the campaign. But as time goes on, I think um, just from our experience, we were more open. I think it does diminish to some degree because you have to make sure you're getting the very best and the brightest and you want to expand your universe to do that. So I think when I came on board, that was part of my charge was to help train the team in understanding how do you go out into the market and proactively recruit people? How do you find the people that have the qualifications you're looking for? And and we would, you know, but we were also comparing and contrasting those like in the 2004 election, people that were working on that, you know, they, they did get priority if you're working on that campaign. So I think campaign experience is really great, um, but, but also anything you can do to really kind of almost self-assess yourself and put together a cover letter that really helps to kind of pinpoint where you think you're, me- you're best suited. And I want to come back to this topic in a little bit, but it would also seem to me, obviously your network's important. Mm-hmm. You know, who do you know who knows someone who's involved in the search process for the position you're looking at? Correct. And doing that type of mapping well, it, an important it, element it is, and it's, it's getting connected to the people at presidential personnel that are leading those searches. It's also getting connected to the White House liaison at the respective department that you might have an interest in working for. So if you're, if you're interested in the Treasury Department, you know, all of these departments have a White House liaison, and their job is to kind of coordinate with the White House in, in, in one aspect on all of these appointments. So there are really two points of entry that I think folks can, can try to network into. And in addition to that, it's just any other people that you know, you know, that can help you. But it's, that's hard in the beginning of an administration because they're drinking from a fire hose, you know, trying to fill the, the number, the vast number of jobs. So the first part is positioning yourself to optimize your chance. And then the second part is the internal vetting process that happens Mm -hmm. inside the government. Yes. And to me, and I'm sure to a lot of people, this has always seemed like a total black box. Yes. So (laughs) when there's White House vetting of a candidate or department vetting, what does that mean? What, What is actually happening with that process? So it, the vetting process really comes in, I think, really three flavors. The first one starts with the Office of Presidential Personnel. Um, We had a whole research team that did nothing but kind of public record searches in terms of 
looking at what people have published, what people have said publicly to make sure that there's nothing that can be kind of inflammatory. This was pre-social media. This is pre-social media, <laughs> right. absolutely. So, so there's there's kind of the you know the the Facebook and Twitter. Yeah. What have you posted? All of that stuff today is definitely kind of an issue we didn't have to deal with back then. But um, so that's number one. The second flavor is once someone is in the process, meaning once we've selected um, a candidate, then it gets turned over and the FBI and the IRS do their checks. And it depends on which position, you know, kind of what position in terms of what level, but they do kind of the tax checks, you know, um, credit checks, they do the background, um, full FBI investigation. And um, if there were any issues that were flagged, it would go to counsel's office and they would make a determination. And, um, and then they would come back and let me know. And I will tell you, a, fair, a fairly significant number of people did not make it through that process. And what knocks it out? They didn't pay the, the famous nanny, nanny tax taxes. issue. <laughs> I mean, you, you probably in some ways became almost like a confessional for people where they would, they'd have some personal issue and they'd come to you and say, hey, just yes. so you know, I did this and, you know, maybe it was college or whatever. But you, you probably yes. heard a lot of interesting uh I heard Anecdotes. a lot of things I couldn't unhear. Right. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, um, yes, a lot of folks would, I would always ask the questions about the skeletons in the closet right. that could come back out, you know, and haunt the president. Um, and generally people would say, all clear. And then it would be three days later, I'd get the phone call that said, you remember that question you asked me about? Um, yeah, there's something I need to talk to you about. And usually I would turn it right. They would tell me what it was, and I would turn it over to counsel's office. But it ranged the gamut. So obviously you had a fascinating time in government. Um, met lots of people, were involved in some really interesting placements. But at some point, you needed to leave. How did you assess what you wanted to do next? When was the right time, and, and how did you transition to start the firm you're at today? Well, I, I look back on that time. I left towards the end of 2007, which was, you know, well over a year before I wanted, you know, I really would have wanted to leave. But I ended up needing to leave because we had a situation that occurred with our, our nanny, and my daughter was five, my younger daughter was three and a half, and they were, they were being a, a lot more vocal about their displeasure of mom's working hours, if you know what I mean. So it became evident for personal reasons that I needed to and actually take a bit of a break, which is what I did. And um, so I left kind of October of 2007, and then I took off a lot of time. I, I, I started thinking I would take off about six months, and it ended up being almost a full year. And I, I actually received the best advice that year um, from my husband um, because I had I was very fortunate to have an opportunity to go back to my old firm Hydric and Struggles um, I had an offer from Hydric and I was talking to some of the other executive search firms but I honestly I wasn't I, I just wasn't feeling excited about pursuing that path but I knew I wanted to do executive search so my husband just said you know what take more time don't jump into anything and that turned out to be the right decision because I ultimately came to the conclusion that even though I am not an entrepreneur by nature, uh, I'm a little risk averse actually by nature, I ultimately decided I'm gonna try to make a go of starting my own firm. And I hung my own shingle for about six months. And while that was a great experience professionally, personally, I wasn't happy because I really enjoy the camaraderie of a team. And so I ended up 
um, joining forces with a couple of other partners, all of whom came from the, the large global executive search firms. And that's when we came together and um, kind of constituted the firm Lachlan Partners in December of 2009. And as you were going through this process and starting the firm, what was the, the hardest or most unexpected issue you had to deal with? I think those first six months of me literally hanging a shingle and working out of my home, that was the hardest time for me. That's when I, I kind of soul searched and realized, okay, this is not what I want to do long term. So I wanted to build a firm and I wanted to build a brand that would compete with the Corn Fairies, the Hydricks, the Spencer Stewarts of the world and the Russell Reynolds. I didn't I saw an opportunity in the DC market. There was there's really no other boutique firm that competes with those firms. And as I took off the, that year, I had a lot of coffees and a lot of lunches with people. And I asked people the question, what's been your experience working with executive search firms? And I, I'll be honest, it wasn't altogether positive. You know, there were a lot of positive comments, but there were a lot of negative comments. And so that therein lie, lies the opportunity that I, I saw that we could build a firm that was focused more on doing real custom work, limiting the number of searches we take on, so we could spend more time with our clients and with our candidates, you know, to really, um, you know, be able to do a search from A to Z and do it to the best of our abilities. And I found that in the, the bigger search firms, the more leveraged models that they employ just don't always allow for the best outcome. You mentioned that you're not entrepreneurial by nature, but yet you took the jump and started this firm. Mm -hmm. What would you tell other budding entrepreneurs that they should really think about before they leave a corporate job or another opportunity to start a firm? Yeah, I will say, um, you know, we built up our firm to 14, 15 people to begin, you know, within a, a couple of years. And, you know, all of a sudden you look around and you've got 14 or 15 people that you are responsible for and that, you know, you're you know, the work that you're doing. Um, so, you know, so there are times in the consulting world where you have peaks and you have valleys. And so you just have to, to make sure that you have the stomach to be able to kind of weather those valleys. And, and fortunately, we've not had a lot of those valleys. So I've, I've you know, we've had a really great run. Um, but I also, you know, was very fortunate that I have a husband who's very gainfully employed. And he's a lawyer, and I just tell him to keep billing. And as long as he could do that, <laughs> I could do, I could uh, do my flyer in, in, in starting Lachlan Partners. But fortunately, it all worked out great. You know, every person who's in government at some point has to leave. Right. And everyone's transition out of government is different. And it could depend on when in an administration you decide to leave, are you moving? Or, you know, there's a whole bunch of factors that can affect one's transition out. Um, how do you advise people to sort of best position themselves on the exit to set themselves up for success in their next opportunity? Well, I think part of this um, is people really – people who have a lot of great government experience – I talk to all the time about translating their experiences because that's the name of the game. I mean, they've got to figure out how do I connect the dots for people so that if I'm a deputy assistant secretary at the State Department or at Treasury or at, you know, wherever, that I can kind of connect those dots, whether it's corporate, trade association, nonprofit, higher ed, whatever they decide to do. And so sometimes when I see folks coming from primarily a government background, um, and I'll look at their, their resumes, their written, you know, documentation, CV, resume, bio. 
often I find that it's it's not it doesn't tell their story in a way that helps to connect those dots. So I think one of the best ways for people to do that is not using a resume, actually. It's, you know, you have to have a resume because everyone wants to see the dates, but you are limited in a resume because of the format of a resume. And so what I always tell people is write a narrative bio that really tells, like for, for you, Brian, it would tell, you know, the Brian Corbett story. And it would do it in a way that actually highlights your competencies and also your accomplishments. So that by the time someone reads it and see the light bulb turns on and, and it kind of connects those dots. So often that's how I try to talk to people about, all right, think about your experience in terms of the key competencies that you've developed over the last 10, 15, 20 years and write your bio so it really highlights your leadership skills, your you know, relationship building skills, your policy skills, whatever your skills are, only you can determine. So I think, um, I think that's kind of number one. And, and then number two, it all becomes networking. And I think it's important for people, you know, you almost have to treat it like a part-time job, you know, and network with the people that know you. Spoon feed them. Don't just say, hey, I'm looking, but actually say, I'm, I'm interested in looking and here's what I think I can do, you know, really help people understand what you're looking for. And then, um, and then also, I think it's important to, you know, develop relationships with the executive recruiters in this space. If you're looking in the DC market, there's only a handful of us that do a lot of the searches here. So it's kind of like lobbyists, right? You don't want, you want to have those relationships when you, when you need them, um, not, you know, or ha have those relationships before you need them, rather. So I, I would urge people to de start developing relationships with the, the headhunting kind of community because they can be very helpful. I've always thought that there was a disconnect between how a lot of private sector companies viewed government experience and government service. They tended to, I've always thought, tend to view it in kind of a box off to the side. Mm -hmm. In your experience, is that accurate and has it changed at all? I mean, are, are, are private companies better at making those connections between what someone did in the government and what they might be able to do at their company outside of a, of a traditional kind of government affairs role, which I think makes sense and people would get, but translation to other areas, whether it's marketing or business development or some other function at a, at a company? I think outside of government affairs, it's still, it's still pretty hard. I think my clients tend to want people that have, I, I hear clients say they want a diverse set of experiences. So they love to see when people go in and out of government, you know, whether they started on the Hill, then moved to a company, then went back and served in an administration. I mean, you've got to be careful. You don't want to look like a job hopper. And there's a, there's a fine balance there. But I think the more kind of experiences you can have like early on as you build your career that kind of transition both, um, both worlds, I think the better. I think if you're all government for 20 years, it's, I'll be honest, I think it's a hard stretch to then move into a corporate role. Because I think corporations want to see, they're very different animals in terms of how you, how you get things done. And so I think they want to see generally that someone's been successful outside of a government environment. I would urge people to kind of think about their careers and really actively manage them and think about, okay, you don't want to be somewhere so too long. And there is that point at which it becomes, you know, tough to kind of then make a change. And um, I don't think there's any specific number of years. Right. I think it just, you have to, each case is kind of individual, but, um, 
but I would encourage people to to really be thoughtful about that. So we, we've talked about the idea of networking a couple of times, which is obviously critical in any sort of job transition. And in many ways, you're, you're kind of the ultimate networker given where right. you sit and what you do for a profession. I mean, how would how do you curate your network and sort of maintain it? Because everyone's busy, they're working full time. It's mm -hmm. hard to find the opportunities to quote unquote network for some for a job that maybe two or three years down the line. And any advice, anything you do to help build your network? I guess I would say my networking, it's very relationship based. You know, I really enjoy the people that I've worked with in the past. I tend to, um, you know, really try to get together with people um, for coffee, you know, trying to kind of touch base with people. Um, I have a very deliberate way when we have searches, I reach out to a lot of people in my network, you know, via text, via email, hey, I've got this search, can you help, you know, do you have any ideas? You know, over time, it just has established um, kind of a, a cadence to our searches that I know instantly if I get a new search for a head of government affairs, there's, you know, kind of a group of people that I always reach out to, you know, to kind of be that core group that I trust, that I know can, you know, um, can help help me uh, think through some of the, the great talent out there. Um, but I, I think networking is, is hard. It, it's one of those things that you've got to be very deliberate about. And you you know, it takes time, you and know. You also don't want to feel like a social climber when no. you go to it. So there's sort of this delicate and you balance. Want, right. And, you know, I, I always try to approach every every conversation I have with wanting to try to, if I need something, I want to try to help give something. You know, I don't want to just look like I'm just taking information from people. I always try to think of, okay, how can I help you? What can I do for you? And I think if people can approach it that way. And also, look, a lot of people ignore headhunters. You know, headhunters will call them for, for positions, and a lot of people just decide I'm not going to call them back. I wouldn't advise. I, I just wouldn't advise you do that because you just never know when that recruiter can help you. So take that time and take that phone call and offer your help and suggestions because if you can start building those relationships, it will come back and they'll they'll remember that and call you um, when and th when they have an, a search that might be appropriate for you. So. I do think you just have to be very deliberate and very earnest about it. And, um, you know, I, I would say uh, the folks here at Lachlan Partners would tell you I spend a, a huge amount of my time having coffees, doing lunches. So I tend to do it more socially mm -hmm. where I want to catch up with people. And I, I have a whole kind of, in fact, I'm in the process of trying to develop a new app to help me. So I can't say much more than that, but I have a whole kind of database that I employee that um, helps me keep track. Are you track. looking for some seed capital? No. <laughs> I, I may come back to you about that. It's <laughs> a great idea. So, Well, I guess to the point of the app, in some ways technology has yes. changed both this networking concept and also probably how you do your job in terms of finding, identifying, and, and vetting candidates. So talk a little bit about yeah. the impact of technology in the last couple of years and, and yeah in your world oh it's huge i mean so linkedin completely transformed our business because you know 15 years ago we used to at hydric and struggles and the corn fairies of the world they touted their proprietary database that had millions of names and you know um, was was curated very carefully and as soon as linkedin entered the equation that that kind of evened the playing field now it has become the access to talent has become much easier because of that. 
Um, and so technology has been huge. We also use a lot of um, kind of obviously different video kind of uh, technology to a lot of our candidates may not be in the D.C. area. So, you know, we're using that. We're using other technologies to try to communicate with our clients, um, not just kind of the, you know, phone call and, and um, email reports, but we're trying to employ some, some new technology to try to make our business more efficient. What's your view on social media for people in terms of how that can help <laughs> people's, I guess, help or hurt yes. people's personal brands? And this is an area you've, I've seen you comment before is the idea of someone having a personal brand and yes. curating that. So w w what, what do you mean by maintaining your personal brand? It's, I think it's really important that, you know, everyone has that brand in their life that they love or, you know, and, and it could be multiple brands, right? And when you think of that brand, there are words that you think of when, you, you know, um, whether it's a car brand or it's a, an apparel brand. Um, but there are words that you, when you think of whether it's Nike or Under Armour or, you know, in the car world, Ford or, you know, BMW, you, there are words that come to your mind to, to describe those. So when I say think of yourself as a brand, I think of the same thing. What are those words that you want people to know you as? And then you need to live by it. And so, you know, if you are, I, I was talking to a group of folks coming out of college, kind of giving them some advice, and I remember thinking, if you are saying that you are a really detail-oriented person, don't have five typos on your resume. And I can't tell you how many times things like that happen. And that's, a, that's kind of a, a, a silly example. But really think of what you want people to know you as and live by it. Someone gave me that advice 25 years ago, and they also told me, if you want that next promotion, you know, you don't, don't expect it just because you're doing good work in your current job. Act like you're already in the, that next job. You know, you know, kind of take that step to show people that, you know, I'm there already. And, you know, it's those little nuggets that you hear along the way that just define, you know, your work ethic and how you approach the whole, um, your whole kind of career development and career pathing. So just, you know, be deliberate about it and, um, and really hold yourself accountable to whatever you want people to know you by. And that's how, that's what I mean by the personal brand. Since leaving the administration, a lot of our colleagues have gone on to do different things and many people have changed jobs four or five times. Mm -hmm. And in this day and age, that's, that's pretty normal. Uh, when you're talking to potential recruiting candidates or, or talking to, to other executives, how do you tell people to assess their current job and, and when is it the right time to make a move? The, the second you stop kind of feeling like you're really learning and growing, um, I think is, is you, you've got to really assess whether you want to continue because I think the pro part of the problem that I see is that it's like inertia takes over and people don't, you know, they just, they just stay at, at a place where they're not completely content and they're not growing. So, look, I think you've got to determine what do you want out of your career, you know, what's important to you, um, and then manage your career to that. So if, if it, I'm just going to use an example. If you want to be the head of government affairs for a company or an organization, but you don't have any management experience, but you've got lots of great policy and legislative, you know, experience on your resume, well, then you need to be very deliberate in making sure what that next step includes management experience and position yourself and start taking on more projects so that you can talk about your experience that you've managed you know outside consultants or you've managed you know um, teams of people so I think that's where um, 
I've seen people in jobs for long periods of time and they're telling me that they really want to gain management experience, but they've been somewhere for 15 years and they haven't moved. That I think my clients would say, wow, they don't really have the fire in the belly that I'm looking for. And that becomes a negative. So I think, again, there's no magic amount of time. There, I will say on the flip side, if you move too soon, I've seen people, talented people, who have job hopped every two years. And that's not great either. Um, I think in the government that happens more often. You get pulled to go from one place to another. But once you're out in the private sector, you know, you want to show enough time have enough time to show actual accomplishments. And as you've built Lachlan, you've obviously been incredibly busy. You have your two daughters at home. You're co-founder of this firm. You know, the question of balance sort of comes up in a lot of these career conversations mm-hmm. as well. Is, is, and, and how do you manage it? I mean, do you, do you have any hobbies? I mean, what, what, what's Liza doing outside of I don't know uh, if I office? manage it, <laughs> honestly. Um, I have, so yes, I have a lot of hobbies, but my, uh, right now, my latest hobby is helping my junior in high school look at colleges. It seems like that's become my part-time job. Um, no, I'm very, you know, very, you know, my family is first and foremost. So I, my, I would say in terms of hobbies, I love spending time with my husband and my girls. Um, I love to work out. That's my release. So for me, um, that's probably at the top of the list. If I'm not working out every week, then I feel like I'm, um, my, my, my head's not really clear. Um, so I'm a big, big podcaster. I love podcasts. I love hiking, anything outdoors, skiing. So that's how I kind of blow off steam. Um, and my husband and I, that's, we met skiing out in Aspen, you know, 25 years ago. So that's kind of our, our thing that we love to do as a family. Before we were chatting, you mentioned that your youngest daughter was about to get her first job. Yes. And very happy. I know you're very excited <laughs> about that. And it made me, I forgot to ask you this before. What was your first job? Oh my goodness. Um, so my first job was, um, I mean, if you want to go way back, Brian, I was, I, I did a paper route in Boston when I was at like fourth grade. So that was like going way back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but my, my actual job when I was a teenager, I started waiting tables down in Newport News, Virginia at the Rockola Cafe. (laughs) And I, um, I told both my girls that I, you know, I don't care what they do in terms of summer jobs, you know, while they're in high school, but, but I am going to make them both basically work in food service as a, you know, because I think when you can handle the type of people you handle in a restaurant and you're working with people who can be rude and, you know, it just teaches you a lot of character, how to work and how to deal with people. And so I'm very excited because my younger daughter just got a hostess job at a little restaurant in, in our town. So We'll see if that leads to uh, <laughs> waiting uh, That tables. is actually so interesting. You're, you're absolutely right about the food service business because for half of one summer, not even half, like two weeks of one summer, I was a waiter at Bennigan's. I, I was a waiter at and, Bennigan's. And, <laughs> and I probably spilled like three trays of margaritas, and finally they're like, okay, this isn't the job for you. So then they moved me to become the doorman and bouncer <laughs> on Friday. So they, they repositioned me. See, they me. assessed your talents. <laughs> <That's right>. and <laughs> And they made so some, I became some changes. The, the, the doorman at Bennigan's, which That's was uh, a very memorable experience. <laughs> um, well, I guess this leads to the next question. If you weren't at Lachlan, if you hadn't started this firm, what would you be doing? Liza Wright, the early days. I wanted to be a dolphin trainer, <laughs> and that was my dream. That was kind of growing up. So what? 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 Tri- <laughs> were you a big fan of Flipper, the uh, TV no, show? No, I don't what? think that triggered it. I, I, no, I, I had a huge love of animals. I originally thought I was going to be a vet, but then. 
when I went to college, I realized I also wanted to make a good living. And you know, Brian, I'm not sure that yep. was going to be the path to kind of get me to my financial goals. <laughs> so ultimately. Well, well, we all have the path not taken, Liza. I, right. So, <laughs> right. Dolphin, thank you for sharing that with us, though. So let's fast forward five years from now. Right. What What is the... What does Lachlan look like? What what's how has the firm grown? And Lachlan and has taken over DC and uh, is the premier the, the you know the uh, search firm um, of choice. No, I, you know we built this firm to be an alternative to the big search firms. Um, I have a lot of friends in the big search firms, and they're they're good people. But at the end of the day, I think we've built a special kind of uh, way of doing business. We actually it was early on. After I left the White House, my husband and I, this is a true story, Brian, we were watching, one of my favorite movies is Jerry Maguire. And if you remember in Jerry Maguire, the very beginning of the movie, he, Tom Cruise did this mission statement. Do you remember that? Yes. And he got fired. <laughs> because, but his mission statement was less clients, more attention, and that's ultimately, it was kind of an... I know this sounds really corny, but this is true. I paused the movie and I looked at my husband and that's kind of what I realized. That's what I want to do. I love the work that we do. I love working with the clients that we have and, and, and I actually really love meeting candidates and trying to help them think through their careers and offering advice. And so I just wanted to do it in a, in a, in a place where I could devote the, the right amount of time, I think, to get to the best outcomes. And I think that's what we've been able to build. So if, if we can continue if in five years, if we're doing, continuing to do that, I'll be thrilled. Well, I know over the years, we've had a number of conversations and you've always been a great friend. So thank you for all the time you've always thank spent you. with me. And I wish you and your colleagues here at Lachlan great success. And uh, we will do a, an update in five years to see how I things love are it. playing out. <laughs> thank you. So Brian. thank you, Liza. All right. The show is produced by Sarah Langauer.